This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Joy 94.9 presents Absolutely Everybody. Sponsored by and presented by Anecto, the People Network. Absolutely everybody, only on Joy 94.9. Sunday the 17th of May, uh, there is of course the International AIDS Candlelight Memorial, uh, which is uh, again to to raise awareness around um, people living with HIV. And uh, today we have in the studio Max Niggle from Living Positive Victoria. How are you, Max? Very well and thank you for inviting me in today. It's our pleasure. Thanks for coming in. So 12 months ago... Um, was the, the conference, or coming up to, it's a couple mm-hmm. of months off that, but it was quite a momentous occasion for Melbourne to have uh, such, a, you know, uh, a, a big uh, contingent of people coming from around the world for that conference. Uh, you were obviously there. What impact has the conference, or what were the ramifications from having the conference in Melbourne? Have you seen roll out from, from last year? I think one of the biggest... Um uh, things that came out of it was the uh, uh, joint declaration by the uh, federal and state health ministers around the goals that we seek to achieve, and that is to stop HIV infections, to stop um, for the diagnosis of AIDS, but also to challenge stigma and discrimination. So not only that, it, it, the conference really highlighted to, to Melburnians and to Australians that HIV is still here. You know, it's, it's not just buried in the background as if no one needs to worry about it. And increasingly, we are seeing more heterosexual transmissions here in Australia, especially in far north Queensland and in WA, mm. partly based upon the fly and fly out uh, mining booms and also the uh, people's propensity to go off to, you know, Southeast Asia and other countries mm. where HIV is far more prevalent. Mm. So there's 27 and a half thousand people living with HIV in Australia. Approximately, yes. Approximately. Um, I think it's really important to differentiate again, uh, as we were discussing before, is that there's not many occurrences of AIDS in Australia anymore. It's really the HIV uh, virus which people are living with and and is, is largely controlled these days. Can you talk a, bit, a little bit about the difference there? Yeah, so HIV is... Um, Obviously, what people do contract uh, if if they come in contact with HIV from another partner. Uh, The most important point to make here is that uh, with the medications that are now available, people living with HIV are highly unlikely to be able to transmit the virus in any, whether it's heterosexual or or homosexual sex. Uh, And that, of course, is a a really powerful message that uh, we are not, to use a stigmatising word, infectious. and leading on from that, people think that HIV equals AIDS equals death in many cases because there's not a lot of education out there. So it, it makes us um, a little bit anxious at times that we call people living with AIDS because we're not living with AIDS. We're living with a virus and that virus is extremely well managed if you are under good medical care and taking the treatments. So it really is a, a, around information. Joy. Uh, we were talking before, Max, about um, 
about the stigma around people living with HIV. Now, you yourself have lived with HIV for 30 years, I believe. That's correct, yes. So, yeah, that's quite a lifetime of experience for you. Um, can we talk a little bit about when, when you were first diagnosed and how that kind of played out for you? Mm, that's a long story, it's, so I'll try to be... Yes, uh, abbreviate, <laughs> but yeah. You know, going back 30 years. Um, it would have been a very different time, though, then, I in, would imagine. Incredibly uh, difficult time. Um, at that time it was very much a lot about fear because there are very few treatments if at all uh, I um, was uh, tested for HIV in 1987 and I told my doctor I did not want to know the result because there was just nothing that could be done mm. and 10 months later I came down with an AIDS defining illness so that was the wake up call that I really had to start to engage and involve myself in uh, understanding HIV as much as I could. Back then many of us uh, worked um, uh, in a very unique way with our doctors who were incredibly passionate and caring and often we knew more about treatments um, and the side effects and we were raising side effects, these awful side effects that we were experiencing back then. So I, all I could say is that every time I went to uh, Fairfield Hospital at the time that it was this sense of foreboding or, or dread, you know, what's going to happen next? Will I survive the next month? And mm -hmm. it sounds dramatic now from you know, a perspective of today mm. but you know when people that you see one week you saw them at Fairfield Hospital the next week they're not there mm. they're dead yeah that that would have been you know really confronting um I, I guess um one of the questions around the, the the medical profession and I think we've discussed this before on the show is understanding um you know things that are outside uh, how was it? How was it? Uh, how were you able to to find the right doctors for you at the time? Uh, like, did you just go to your GP and start educating your your own GP about it, or what? Well, I was very fortunate. Uh, my doctor at the time was Dr. Peter Meese, and he was a gay man, oh, okay. and uh, he his practice specialised in looking after the needs of um, gay men in particular. So he was right on top of what was emerging at the time with the epidemic of HIV. And uh, so he was fabulous as a support. And of course, once I had to engage with uh, Fairfield Hospital, uh, the doctors and the nurses there, social workers also, were just astonishingly wonderful. Mm. Couldn't ask for more support. Fantastic. And how long into that did the, did the I guess, the, the, the circumstances change in terms of uh, medications into your journey? Yeah, so in 1988, when I came down with um, an AIDS-defining illness, I was immediately put on to AZT, which was the only drug available at the time. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we were just grasping at straws, anything that we could get uh, in the way of medication and support uh, to try to stay alive was, was crucial. So in that um, long journey of rather ineffective treatment, suddenly in 95 and 96, we got the new era of drugs. And we started to see this massive decline in people dying. Mm. And that was all about their immune systems recovering. From that time, the medications have improved absolutely out of sight. And side effects are pretty minimal for most people. Mm. So, you know, it's almost like every five years we say, oh, wow, this next lot of meds are fantastic. Mm. Um, and increasingly so, I don't even know that I'm taking them anymore. Yeah, that's great. So what were some of the initial side effects? Oh. <laughs> I mean, without going to... It's, yeah. a, it's a good question because often um, I actually had this conversation with a 12-year-old the other day who we were talking about um, cancer and, you know, what, where do you draw the line between, you know, the 
the uh, side effects from the drugs or what mm. are the side effects of the illness. Yeah. Mm. Look, I think all of us want to keep living and mm. so we put up with side effects. That's that's the first message. The, but the side effects are varied from gastrointestinal upsets, you know, like mm. shocking diarrhoea to the point not being able to – just the smell of food would make mm. you nauseous, headaches, um, muscle aches, um, losing um, peripheral um, fat from mm. your limbs mm. um, was one thing that we noticed very early on. And the doctors would say, oh, no, this couldn't be happening. But uh, the reality was, you know, our backsides and our arms were all suddenly um, decreasing. So uh, the thing is that you just couldn't maintain weight. But um, no matter what you did, so we were force-fed nutritional supplements and things like that. So that's quite a horrific journey. So alongside all of that, um, it's your, I guess, your psychological... um, you know, maintaining a, a positive outlook or somehow getting through that. What do you think are some of the uh, moving along from that journey and, you, and obviously when you started to, to feel a bit better after the medications change, et cetera, what, how does that leave you feeling? Almost, um, you know, a sense of exhilaration that, mm. that science and um, uh, the research that was being done around treatments um, was offering us a great deal of hope. And hope is something that defines most of the population. Mm. You know, we all want to uh, see our future being um, positive, so mm. to speak, pardon the pun. <laughs> and uh, it, it just made you feel that you could continue to engage in life rather than being a little bit more constrained. Mm. Uh, and suddenly I was even able to go and have another drink. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas for five years I could hardly touch alcohol because of the side effects. So mm. um, it was just about re-engaging with life and 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 building a sense of uh, um, enablement. Mm. Um, just a little bit about the stigma, I guess. Then, in terms of um, you've been on this journey, did did how does that play out for you? Um, we talk about the fact that it doesn't define you as a person. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you live with HIV, but it's obviously controlled now through medication, etc. But where, where do you find um, that you need to, or, or if you do need to tell people, how does that play out? Or do you ever feel marginalised by your condition, I guess, is the question. I don't, but many, many people do. And yeah. that's in a way called internalised stigma, where mm. people don't feel confident or yeah. empowered enough to actually disclose their HIV status. But once you go on that journey of disclosure, it, it's a progression. So even my local milk bar um, cafe that I go to for my coffee, he knows where I work in the HIV sector. He knows my HIV status. Some of my neighbours know. So I don't have a problem with disclosure. However, that journey was a very, very long journey. So for the first 11 years, I only disclosed to a few family members and to a few friends. I kept it within me, and that was a huge burden. Mm. So when uh, I was asked to join uh, Living Positive Victoria, which back then was people living with HIV AIDS, Victoria, I had to make a decision about being upfront about my status. Mm. Great. Best thing that I ever did. Fantastic. We'll, We'll be back with more from Max Niggle in a moment. Bring joy to the world. Listen to us everywhere. Download the Joy Smartphone app. 
now at joy.org.au. We were all just talking about um, some of the broader facts about HIV that people need to be aware about. I think I was so surprised about the prevalence of uh, where AIDS is actually starting to turn up now. And uh, you mentioned Northern Australia, and that was, okay. I'm just starting to think this is stereotypical or something. But I didn't actually really realise what you meant by that. And also the fly-in, fly-out crews working in Western Australia and and the northern part of Australia as well. And I was just wondering if you could sort of touch on a little bit more detail there. Sure. Well, first of all, uh, uh, Papua New Guinea is our nearest neighbour and there's a lot of uh, people migrating across the Torres Strait into far north Queensland. But it's not just about Papua New Guineans. They're actually coming here sometimes for treatment because they can't access it at home. But more importantly, we're finding in, in Western Australia and far north Queensland that the diagnosis of heterosexual men in particular is increasing at quite a rate. And in fact, uh, you know, Western Australian AIDS Council have really had to refocus their energy on educating uh, mining communities about going off to travel destinations where HIV may be more prevalent. Is the government doing anything towards uh, bringing awareness towards those particular areas or is it just something that's just happening willy-nilly? Uh, The government uh, funds various agencies such as Living Positive Victoria, such as Western Australian AIDS Council and state governments also chip in funding. So it is up to the non-government organisation to do this education in the communities and yes, they are doing this education. But it's something that we're not hearing about down here in the southern states. No, because uh, invariably uh, the diagnosis of heterosexuals here in Victoria is quite low, uh, less than 20%. Uh, However, um, agencies such as Positive Women and Straight Arrows, uh, heterosexual support agencies, do a lot of education in the community, as does the Multicultural Health Support Service. Okay, my son, he was working uh, fly-in, fly-out for about four years, Mm -hmm. and he certainly didn't come across anything like that or any information about it. But then again, he was really flying in, flying back home to a family. Mm. But Um, I imagine there's a bit more to that particular side of it that's causing the issues. I think because there is a lot of money in the mining gas boom for employees is that they have the ability to travel more, but they're not necessarily aware of the risks of HIV in major travel destinations. So it's not actually uh, something that's an issue within the mining community with the fly-in, fly-out, but it's what happens post. Correct. So it's not within the mining community. Right. It, it is about people flying out off to travel destinations. Right. So basically, um, we, we were just talking about the fact that um, that it's a repositioning of the whole dichotomy or the whole dynamic of HIV. There's a lot of education that needs to be done. Some um, myth busters, that sort of thing around um, around HIV. So what are some of the, I guess, the frequently, um, the points that people get wrong about HIV? Uh, good question. Uh, the point that most, uh, many Australians get wrong is that HIV is not their business. Mm. But HIV is everybody's business, and we only have to look at how the global epidemic of HIV and AIDS is is progressing, and that is a heterosexually driven epidemic. And it is, you know, for example, in the US, it's affecting Hispanic and, and black American women and children more so. Um, it, it, it all comes back to people thinking, oh, HIV doesn't worry me. Mm. 
And in Australia, unfortunately, the myth is it's confined to gay or men who have sex with men. Mm. And thereby people just put up their hands, I'm not one of them, I don't really care. Mm. Yeah, do people avoid treatment? Or You said, you know, when you first were, well, you went for testing, you said, I don't want to know. I mean, I guess back then, too, it was more life-threatening. But um, is this, again, just putting your head in the sand? Are people afraid to, or can they not get away with it? Like, what would be the symptoms for people? Well, sometimes the symptoms don't show, Mm. uh, whereas often there is, like, an extreme flu-like uh, reaction to contracting HIV, but some people don't get that. And of course, HIV can you know continue living in your body for a long time until you actually get to a point where it's destroyed your immune system and suddenly you're very, very sick. And that's what we're trying to avoid. We're actually wanting people to more regularly test and to understand that by testing more regularly for HIV and sexually transmitted infections, by the way, that they're actually looking after their own health and well-being. So that's the strong message, mm. that, that this is not a condition that affects gay men in Australia. This is something we wish to avoid in that it becomes a generalised heterosexual epidemic in Australia, and we've been very successful so far at that. So are you suggesting that people should, re- should request to be tested for HIV? If they're, if, if you know, obviously, you know, if they've, um, and you don't have to be promiscuous. That's the other myth, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All those gay men, you know, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. And the blame that used to go on. And there's still blame and shame that goes on, even in the gay community, about people who are being more recently diagnosed, which I find quite confronting because, you know, they're but for the grace of the greater being, mm. you know, goes that person. Uh, and it's sometimes just luck of the draw. Mm. But the message is that if people think that they have put themselves at risk, that they need to understand what those risk factors are. Mm. And that is having either unprotected sex or having sex in a, you know, a social or holiday environment where they think they can get away with it and then they come back with something that they really don't want. I just find it really, I mean, this might be judgmental, but I find it really um, bizarre that people have unprotected sex with, you know, maybe I'm just ignorant, I don't know. But all the messages over the years, is that one message that just hasn't got through? Look, the message has got through incredibly well amongst the gay community. I mean, why on earth have we managed to constrain this epidemic yeah, here in Australia Yeah, I actually wasn't so thinking well. about the gay community there. Uh, I was thinking more about but, the heterosexual community. You know, I think when you, if you're in a hedonistic environment where there's alcohol involved and you're partying, you know, and human beings by nature like risk... And Clearly I'm not around that environment much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so we really, we really want people to understand that you know, safer sex is one of the best ways of protecting yourself against STI and also against HIV. Mm. And to get that message across is, is sometimes difficult because people are just not wanting to know. So how does your work go about letting people know that kind of thing? So our work, uh, well, my role in particular, the Positive Speakers Bureau, we have speakers going out into the community uh, and in particular to schools, secondary schools, Mm -hmm. talking about HIV and um, sexually transmitted infections and their personal narratives. Now, we talk to over 8,000 people a year. Imagine the ripple effect, how that gets the message out. That's one way. The human face of HIV is what I specialise in with our Speakers Bureau and the amazing speakers that I work with. But then our partners, Victorian AIDS Council and all of their health promotion work that that Mm -hmm. is done, 
Living Positive Victoria and the VAC also have been doing a huge campaign around raising awareness about um, more regular testing. And uh, that is crucial in getting those messages across. Is the testing, is it subsidised on the... uh PBS? Yes. So that it's easy for people to access? It's very easy to access and Pronto is one of the best places to go to for, for gay men or men who have sex with men because it's done by your peers. Oh, um, we could talk for ages around this, but I just to have a couple, a couple more quick questions, Max. Just with, um, in terms of older people living with HIV, and I, I said to you at the um, AIDS conference last year, I loved the display of images of people who are older because once upon a time, you know, you didn't associate age with... Mm. HIV because there was not a good prognosis but it was a wonderful um, depiction of older people who can, you know, you can live long and healthy lives as you are a great example of. Um, what is the prognosis for, for you and, and for people, older people living with HIV? Do they, can, are there any side effects now or, you know, do they, can you just get on and live your life now? I'd like to say we can just get on and live our lives, but there there are comorbidities as we age. Comorbidities mean other illnesses. And many of us are experiencing um, cholesterol and triglyceride problems. Some of us are experiencing cardiac problems, liver problems, kidney problems, and also cognitive impairment is something that is occurring too, which is HIV-associated. So it's really important that people are are connected in with their um, medical practitioners to be aware of these things. But I don't have the fear about any other comorbidities, even though I've experienced them and still do such as blood pressure, which has just been diagnosed. Mm. But I would expect that I'm going to be able to retire and I'm going to have a wonderful um, retirement and live as long as my parents, hopefully. Fantastic. Now, just quickly, I know we're running out of time, but 17th of May? Yes. Uh, at uh, the, the details um, are at Federation Square? No, at oh, City Square. Oh, City Square. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Oh, Square was... Now. Do you want to just quickly run through uh, the time, day... Yep. And location. Sunday the 17th of May, International AIDS Candlelight Memorial held at the City Square starting at 5pm. It's for one hour. We've got amazing performances by the Low Res Male Choir. We have keynote speakers, Dr Alison um, Campbell from the Victorian College of the Arts and two of our fabulous HIV positive speakers. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Max. It's been lovely having you on the show. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.